the shrill, high-pitched sound of a whistle is sharp, stinging, unpleasant. It is a sound meant to grab your attention. It's meant to call foul. Nobody wants to hear a whistle, especially when it's directed at them. So what happens when you turn that whistle towards some of the most powerful institutions on the face of planet Earth? It might cost you your job, your reputation, your friendships, or it may just cost you your life. This is Espionage, the podcast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies, their espionage tactics, and what brought their stories to the public eye. I'm Carter Roy. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is the fourth episode in our six-week special on whistleblowing, where we're taking a deep dive into the world of hackers and government secrets. Last week, we discussed notorious whistleblower Chelsea Manning, her delivery of thousands of classified and sensitive documents to WikiLeaks ushered in a new era in modern whistleblowing. This week, we're tackling the dangers of whistleblowing for whistleblowers themselves and sometimes even for the people who turn them in. We'll continue the stories of key figures like Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning, but we'll also detail the stories of others who have followed their moral compasses against the grain. All of them have one thing in common. They paid a price for blowing the whistle. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. At Ikea, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at IKEA-USA.com today. We've already seen some of the consequences whistleblowers face in our previous episodes. While Julian Assange, in particular, was first lauded as an investigative journalist, his revelations quickly became too big, too sweeping, too threatening to the established order of things for most people. Then came the public censure, the moral uproar, the legal repercussions. His and Chelsea Manning's actions sent the world into a frenzy. Par for the course with whistleblowing, because it makes clear-cut conclusions hard to draw. Answers seem to lie in some ambiguous space between the right of the people to governmental transparency and the need of governments for certain secrets. Every individual has to find those answers for themselves. 
But whatever each person decides, one thing is clear. Whistleblowing stories are most often tragedies. Nothing makes this more evident than the last decade of Julian Assange's life. As we discussed in our previous episodes, in 2010, Assange published nearly 260,000 diplomatic cables belonging to the United States government. The documents focused on the U.S.'s wars in the Middle East. People who supported radical government transparency applauded his actions, but most of the public, and certainly the governments in question, were not amused. They'd had enough of Assange's constant whistleblowing, and they were ready to take him down. The United States requested Assange's extradition from the United Kingdom so they could indict him for violating the Espionage Act of 1917, an offense that might carry the death penalty. To make matters worse for Assange, by November of 2010, the Swedish government issued an international warrant for his arrest on grounds of sexual assault. On December 8th, Assange turned himself in to UK law enforcement. They held him in prison while pending an extradition hearing, and on December 20th, they released him on bail. Assange's supporters around the world, dwindling but loyal, had raised more than £240,000 to pay for his freedom. Assange was placed in house arrest at a friend's estate in the English countryside while his lawyers fought against his extradition. He fervently worked with his collaborators to keep his website up and running while striving to keep himself in the public eye, framing Sweden's charges as a trumped-up way to end his mission against state secrecy. But he was worried about the legal battle coming, and especially that ominous death penalty attached to the Espionage Act of 1917 back in the U.S. His lawyers did their best to protect him from extradition. They took his case all the way to the U.K. Supreme Court. But by June 15, 2012, the British government officially declared once and for all that they would be sending Assange to Sweden. Many of Assange's supporters expected him to go to Sweden willingly. After all, they had taken Assange at his word when he publicly claimed that the Swedish charges were bunk and that the WikiLeaks staff could keep the site running without him. But as it turned out, Assange was not willing to put his own claims to the test. On June 19, 2010, in particularly spy-like fashion, Assange rented a room in a hotel under an assumed name. He checked in and used the moment of privacy to disguise himself. He dyed his hair, inserted colored contact lenses, and attached clip-on earrings. He put a rock in a shoe to affect his walk, and then he rushed to the Ecuadorian embassy where he applied for asylum. Assange had been in talks with the Ecuadorian government for quite some time. He knew that culturally, Ecuador had a long-standing respect for political asylum requests, especially when the death penalty was on the line. Perhaps more significantly, the Ecuadorian government at the time did not get along well with the United States. They'd surely appreciate an opportunity to give the U.S. a metaphorical middle finger. And most importantly of all, Ecuador had no extradition treaties with the U.S., the U.K., or Sweden. It was a good plan, and it seemed to work. Ecuador accepted his application. 
but the United Kingdom had no intention of sitting back and allowing Assange to make a mockery of them. They informed him that if he stayed within the Ecuadorian embassy, he would be found in violation of his bail agreement. The 240,000 pounds that his supporters had paid would be forfeited, and a third warrant for his arrest would be written. Assange understood the costs of his asylum, and he understood that his followers would pay the brunt of the price financially. Yet Assange was no stranger to betraying the trust of his one-time supporters in the interest of his relentless passion, promoting government transparency. And if he maintained his freedom, he could continue working on WikiLeaks. For Assange, it was an easy choice. He told the UK government that he would not consent to an arrest. Scotland Yard sent a squadron of police officers to surround the Ecuadorian embassy. They threatened to raid their embassy if they didn't hand Assange over. The Ecuadorians responded with an outright refusal. After all, they pointed out, if UK police entered the Ecuadorian embassy, it would be a violation of international law. Thanks to diplomatic privilege, their embassy was sovereign territory. Tensions brewed, and the police remained outside the building for days. The Ecuadorian president responded with Operation Guest, a program to install extra security within the embassy in case London detectives tried to enter the building in disguise. Eventually, the siege was ended. While the UK desperately wanted to bring Assange in, they decided it was better to respect the sovereignty of Ecuadorian land. Yet, they also made it clear to Assange that if he ever stepped foot on British soil again, he would be arrested immediately. To prove this, London police stationed at least one officer outside of the embassy at all times. In an effort to avoid prison, Assange had essentially trapped himself in a prison of his own making. While he was technically free, he could never leave the building. A small section of the embassy, merely 330 square feet of space, became his new home and base of operations. The only perk for Assange was that he could continue working. For years, that was exactly what Assange did. In coordination with his team outside the embassy, Assange published hundreds of thousands of leaked documents, primarily focusing on the backroom dealing of Western powers. But Assange's determination didn't mean he wasn't well aware of, even paranoid about, the possible consequences of his actions. He was convinced that major world governments were trying to track everything he did. So he took precautions. He acquired several white noise machines to drown out his voice. Assange's fear that people were spying on him was fairly reasonable. Actually, even his saviors, his Ecuadorian hosts, were keeping a close eye on him. They kept track of his visitors, their identities, purpose for being there, country of origin, and so on. They watched the streets for any strange passerby. They even noted Assange's sleep schedule, work habits, and daily routines, closely tracking any changes. But Assange's fears went beyond suspicion that he was being watched. 
He was also getting increasingly paranoid that government agents would attempt to poison him. He didn't think they wanted him dead. On the contrary, he knew they wanted him alive. He believed they only wanted to make him gravely ill, so he would have to leave the embassy for medical attention. Then they could arrest him while he lay helpless on his sickbed. To avoid this scenario, Assange had friends and co-workers order his food under a variety of aliases. They could never order from the same restaurant twice within the same month. To make matters worse, while Assange desperately tried to avoid major medical problems, his minor medical problems began to pile up. He fractured a tooth, injured his shoulder, and had consistent pains in his feet. Yet any time he reached out for a dentist or a doctor, professionals would refuse to see him. They didn't wish to be seen as enemies of the state. Assange had become the contemporary poster boy for whistleblowing, and for its consequences too. To be a whistleblower is to become a pariah, something Assange was now painfully aware of. In his pursuit of radical transparency, he had elevated the truth above his own personal interests. And now he was paying the price. He had lost his home, he had lost his ability to travel, and he had even lost his access to basic medical care. All he had left was his ability to work. But eventually, he would lose that as well. In 2016, just before the Democratic National Convention, Assange published leaked emails from the DNC and Hillary Clinton staffer John Podesta. It looked like a targeted attack against the Clinton campaign and would make many suspect that Assange was working hand-in-hand with the Russian government, especially considering Assange's source seemed to be an allegedly Russian hacker known as Guccifer 2.0. Assange also revealed several other leaks, including a dossier on U.S. involvement in a war in Yemen and a detailed expose on the CIA's latest technological developments in the world of hacking. The CIA leak did nothing to expose illegal activity by the government, but it did greatly increase the American desire to see Assange tried in a court of law. And the latest leaks made people more suspicious of his motivations than ever before. As the international community grew even more upset with Assange, their sentiments began to bleed into the Ecuadorian public as well. Over the years, Assange had become somewhat of a national nuisance. He behaved disrespectfully in the embassy, often skateboarding indoors, breaking embassy property and treating guards poorly. Perhaps more significantly, he had even published leaked documents revealing corruption in the Ecuadorian government. As a result, in the Ecuadorian presidential election of 2017, one of the key candidates ran on an anti-Assange platform, promising to hand the national pet over to the British government should he be elected. To Assange's horror, The anti-Assange candidate won the election, and on April 11, 2019, the new Ecuadorian president made good on his promise. He evicted Assange from the embassy. 
British police officers were invited into the building where they cornered and handcuffed Assange. They escorted him outside, all while he shouted to the cameras, We must resist. You can resist. He was imprisoned in Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, where he remains to this day. The British courts are still considering whether he should be extradited to the United States, but whether he's extradited or not, Assange will not see freedom for quite some time. While Assange still has supporters who are horrified by his incarceration, most of the world is more or less happy with this state of affairs. In part, that's thanks to Assange's controversial, extreme commitment to radical transparency. But for many who are on the fence about the ethics of whistleblowing, it's Assange's egotistical, unpleasant personality that's been the nail in his coffin. While they might support the publication of classified information, they have a difficult time supporting Assange himself. As such, if he's put on trial, few will defend him perhaps failing to recognize the frightening precedent his prosecution might set for any whistleblowers in the future. But if Assange's case exemplifies just how dangerous whistleblowing can be, ironically, sometimes blowing the whistle on a whistleblower has its own price. Up next, the life-shattering consequences of turning in a whistleblower. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. In 2019, the Ecuadorian government handed Julian Assange over to the London police, ending a seven-year-long asylum saga Whistleblowing had cost him everything. But this outcome might have been expected as he crossed some of the most powerful governments the world has ever seen. The same could also be said for Chelsea Manning, the woman who leaked many of the classified documents that put Assange in the crosshairs to begin with. As both Manning and Assange faced jail time for their actions, patriotic members of the public might call this a victory. It would be natural to assume that these same people, and the government itself, would find the person who turned in the whistleblowers a hero worthy of praise. But that's not quite the case. The poisonous impact of whistleblowing is so powerful that even those who expose whistleblowers can pay a high price for their actions. For example, Adrian Lamo the hacker who turned in Chelsea Manning. While today, Lamo is best known for his hand in the Chelsea Manning debacle, he was famous in some circles long before then. Adrian Lamo was a highly skilled, brilliant hacker. 
He got his start in the 90s as a child computer prodigy by modifying the code of video games, writing viruses onto floppy disks, and remotely tapping into other people's phone lines. Lamo enjoyed the attention his digital escapades could bring him, so he would post about his exploits in early hacker chat rooms. Over time, he became known around the world as one of the most prolific hackers alive. Yet while Lamo's digital fame grew, the world at large was still largely unaware of what hackers were capable of. As the general population began to embrace digitization, they had no idea that strangers could access their private information with the simple press of a button. Adrian Lamo saw plenty of hackers take advantage of that ignorance, and he was alarmed. So, hoping to use his computer skills for good, he decided to make the world aware of the importance of cybersecurity. To this end, the still-teenage Lamo would bring his computer to his local Kinko's in the early 2000s, connect to the internet, and hack into the databases of major companies like AOL, Yahoo, and MCI WorldCom. Rather than steal data or do anything malicious, Lamo would then reach out to these major companies and inform them of their security weaknesses. He would offer to fix their weak points free of charge and then offer his services as a security expert for hire should they ever need him again in the future. He was so skilled that in December of 2001, MCI WorldCom publicly praised the 20-year-old for his talents and thanked him for his assistance. The praise would encourage Lamo in his efforts, but not everyone would appreciate his talents. Two months after his successful venture into WorldCom's databases, Lamo hacked into the online network of the New York Times. This time, Lamo decided to announce his presence in cheeky fashion. Rather than steal information from the paper, he left his own information in the paper itself. He combed through the New York Times list of experts and added his own name. Then he went public, expecting to be praised for his talent and humor. Instead, he was served a warrant for his arrest. The New York Times had decided to press charges for one felony count of computer crimes. Lamo turned himself in to the FBI on September 11, 2003. He pleaded guilty to the charges, and on January 8, 2004, he was sentenced to six months of house arrest, two years of probation, and charged a fine of $65,000. He served his time, paid his fine, and apologized for the trouble he had caused. He became more cautious about hacking as he moved forward, but the damage had already been done. His felony conviction scared away major corporations who otherwise would have paid him for his services. The public at large began to see him as a mischief-making menace to society, and he was left with little in the way of professional opportunities. However, his actions had made him an outright legend in the hacking community. While he was already well-known in online forums, his international infamy after hacking into the New York Times was unprecedented. When Lamo attended hacking conferences, he was met with raucous applause. When he appeared on hacking-oriented podcasts and radio shows, he drew listenership the world over. Where the New York Times had seen dangerous law-breaking, 
the hacking community saw talent, boldness, and a sense of humor. To many, the World Wide Web was the Wild West, and Lamo was the man in the white hat. He was breaking rules, sure, but he had found a way to act rebelliously while still behaving in a morally upstanding fashion. Lamo had little in the way of money and power. He was known as the homeless hacker for his habit of couch surfing, but he was famous and beloved by his people, and he had a generally positive outlook on life, enjoying his time in the spotlight. Fortunately for Lamo, all of his luck would change in May of 2010, when he received a direct message in a hacking-focused chat room. The message read, Hi, how are you? I'm an Army intelligence analyst deployed to eastern Baghdad pending discharge for adjustment disorder. I'm sure you're pretty busy. If you had unprecedented access to classified networks 14 hours a day, seven days a week for eight plus months, what would you do? Let's just say someone I know intimately well has been penetrating U.S. classified networks, mining data, and been transferring that data from the classified networks over the air gap onto a commercial network computer, sorting the data, compressing it, encrypting it, and uploading it to a crazy white-haired Aussie who can't seem to stay in one country very long. With those two simple paragraphs, Adrian Lamo had become entangled in the most significant whistleblowing case of the new millennia. The message had been sent by Chelsea Manning, and the white-haired Aussie it referenced was Julian Assange. Manning had reached out to Lamo because of his fame as a world-renowned hacker. She believed he would be one of the few people in the world who could understand and appreciate her situation. Perhaps he would even praise her actions. However, Lamo had a very different reaction. While Lamo and Assange were both known for digital rebellion, Lamo was no anarchist transparency nut. He'd started his career helping enhance data security, even if that involved breaching it first. And he was uncomfortably aware of the potential consequences of Manning's actions, too. He knew that some of the information she was leaking could put the lives of American soldiers and their allies at risk. He felt that if he sat back and did nothing, it was very possible that people could die. His inaction would make him partially responsible for their deaths. Additionally, Lama always suspected that the FBI was keeping close tabs on him. As one of the most powerful hackers in the world, he believed they viewed him as a threat. If they were tracking his digital footprint, then it was very possible they would discover this conversation and they would view Lamo as an accomplice to espionage. Lamo had been forced into a no-win situation. Either he betrayed the whistleblower who trusted him or he endanger himself and potentially even his nation. After several days of anxious deliberation, Lamo finally decided to report Chelsea Manning. If anybody died because of his inaction, he knew he could no longer live with himself. Lamo called his friends, Tim Webster, a former intelligence officer for the Army, and an unnamed business partner. He told both men about the leak and each, in turn, 
reached out to the FBI in Lamo's stead. The government thanked Lamo for his assistance and kept him on file as a potential witness in the case they were building against Assange. But the act did nothing to help Lamo's reputation. The public had already seen Lamo as an untrustworthy individual, and even though he blew the whistle on Manning to save lives, he had betrayed someone's trust in the process. From a professional and personal standpoint, Lamo gained nothing by betraying Manning. In fact, he lost nearly everything he had. When the story went public in June of 2010, the hacker community that had loved and admired Lamo all his life turned against him. Many of them sympathized with Assange's anarchic tendencies. It was a part of the freewheeling Wild West culture of the hacking world. Lamo's actions, meanwhile, felt like a betrayal of their deepest held values. Lamo was attacked on message boards, internet forums, and chat rooms, receiving death threats from hackers across the globe. All the places where he was once most comfortable became hotbeds of derision and hatred. Even when Lamo would attempt to rejoin these communities under anonymous names, the other hackers would quickly discover his identity and drive him out. While all of this occurred in the digital space, Lamo was reviled in person as well. In 2010, Lamo was invited to speak at a hackers' conference called Hackers on Planet Earth, or HOPE for short. His panel was titled Informants, Heroes or Villains. It was ostensibly meant to be a discussion about the complicated ethics of feeding information to the government, but in reality, it was an ambush. The other members of the panel used the opportunity to call Lamo a villain to his face, and the attendees of the conference began deriding him like a mob. Most called out snitch. A few spat at him, and one attendee even said, I see what you've done as treason. I think you belong in Guantanamo. Just like that, Adrian Lamo had gone from one of the most respected hackers alive to one of the most despised. Lamo spent the rest of his life as a very sad person. Companies saw him as an unhirable felon, the government saw him as a dangerous hacker, and the hackers saw him, as Julian Assange once put it, as a petty con man and betrayer of basic human decency. He bounced from place to place, living on friends' couches, friends' parents' couches, and even within a low-income retirement community. He died in 2018 at the age of 37. Those who knew him best believe his death was the unfortunate side effect of an unhealthy lifestyle and a dangerous mix of drugs that were found within his system. Ironically, through all of this, Chelsea Manning was one of the few people in the world who had something nice to say about Lamo. I've never had any ill will towards Adrian at any time. I'm more mad at the government for using him. Manning's forgiving attitude towards the man who turned her in may be a product of their shared identity as whistleblowers. She knew what it meant to act on your conscience, and she knew what it meant to lose everything because of it. When it comes to blowing the whistle, it doesn't matter which side you're on. The act is rife with danger, including the greatest danger of all, death. 
When we return, we'll see just how risky whistleblowing can be. Now, back to the story. Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, and Adrian Lamo were all involved in one of the largest whistleblowing events of modern history, and each of them suffered greatly because of it. However, the dangers of whistleblowing can extend far beyond public ostracization and jail time. In fact, sometimes whistleblowing may cost you your life. It's not difficult to imagine that crossing some of the most powerful institutions in the world might result in death. In fact, the Espionage Act of 1917 specifically allows for the death penalty. The prospect of execution is all too present in the minds of those who fear tyranny. It fuels suspicion that is sometimes justified and other times bordering on paranoia. There have been several instances where whistleblowers have died under mysterious circumstances. Perhaps the most recent example was pointed out by Julian Assange himself. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When Assange was scrutinized for publishing the DNC emails in 2016, many people believed his source was most likely Russian in origin. Assange himself refused to concede this, and in fact went out of his way to declare that his source was not Russian. Most suspected that Assange had been unwittingly duped by Russian intelligence organizations who sent Assange the emails through a third party. Most evidence seems to support this theory. But Assange himself seemed to have an alternative explanation. He heavily implied that his source was a young man named Seth Rich. Now, Seth Rich was a DNC worker who lived in Washington, D.C. On July 9th, 2016, he was out drinking with friends. When he'd finished his drinks, he walked home alone, only to be stopped by two strange men. The men fought with Rich before they gunned him down. Seth Rich died that night, and his killers have never been identified. Local investigators believe the crime was a robbery. That area of D.C. had seen a series of random killings that all fit the same M.O., and it seemed like the best explanation. 
Assange, however, heavily implied that Seth Rich was his source from within the DNC, and that DNC assassins had killed him for it. Assange never said directly that Rich sent the emails, but this idea took hold in many online circles. The Seth Rich conspiracy became one of the most popular conspiracy theories of the 2016 election, which is no small accomplishment. Based on the available evidence, Seth Rich most likely was not Assange's whistleblower, and his death was likely random. However, the fact that his story gripped the public's imagination is telling. It's strong evidence that many people had noted how harshly whistleblowers are treated by the public and the law alike, and they've surmised that whistleblowing might be a potentially fatal endeavor. There are many other stories that make this fate seem frighteningly plausible. Gary Webb is one such example. Gary Webb was an award-winning journalist working for the San Jose Mercury News, a relatively small paper at the time. Webb was widely known as a careful and reputable reporter, and in the 1990s, he stumbled across a story that had been reported on in the 1980s but largely ignored in the following years. He discovered that the crack cocaine epidemic that had plagued black communities throughout the 80s was largely supplied by the Contras, a revolutionary military force attempting to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. The Contras were organized and armed by the U.S. government, which was by then public knowledge. But according to Gary Webb's investigation, the U.S. had done much more than fund their military escapades. In fact, Webb claimed the CIA had been complicit and possibly conspiratorial in the Contra's drug trafficking. Sometimes, they would even block the prosecutions of people involved in the crack cocaine trade. When Webb felt he had the full story, he published it in 1997 as a three-piece investigation titled Dark Alliance. The story was the first bombshell report to see widespread distribution across the internet. It rocked the nation and infuriated the public, especially those who lived in the black communities that had been decimated by crack cocaine. CIA public affairs was initially rocked by the backlash. They struggled to address the scandal, simply claiming that some of Webb's reporting was inaccurate and that Webb had never bothered to reach out to them for comment. In response, Webb claimed he had reached out to the CIA and they had outright ignored him. The CIA began to sweat, but they would soon be saved by an unexpected source, the mainstream media. National publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times turned their attention to Webb's reporting. The LA Times, in particular, spent an inordinate amount of resources attempting to debunk Webb's story, primarily out of jealousy for losing the scoop. Over time, these papers would print more words denouncing Webb's reporting than Webb had initially included in his report itself. Their counterattacks weren't completely without merit. Webb had gotten some details wrong, and he had exaggerated from time to time. However, oftentimes the counterattacks would make similar mistakes, leaning far into hyperbole. All in all, Webb's reporting had gotten the major details correct. 
but the full-blown attack on his credibility decimated his reputation as a reporter. His own paper, the San Jose Mercury News, began to distance itself from the Dark Alliance. Webb struggled to defend himself and his story, but he was fighting a losing battle. Eventually, his career was utterly destroyed, and there was nothing he could do to revive it. Webb fell into a deep depression that lasted for years. Finally, on December 10, 2004, he was found dead in his apartment with two gunshot wounds to the head. The coroner who examined his body proclaimed that Webb had died by suicide. He declared that it was entirely possible for someone to shoot themselves in the head twice and that it had happened several times before. However, many were not convinced. Instead, it seemed likely that Webb had been murdered. The most popular theory was that Webb was killed in retaliation for blowing the whistle on the CIA. Of course, even if he died by suicide, it could have still been directly caused by his whistleblowing. Webb had exposed himself to the full force of public censure, which sent him spiraling into a deep and long-lasting depression and ultimately led him to take his own life. Either way, Gary Webb is a prime example of how the act of whistleblowing can end someone's life, both metaphorically and literally. And there are many more examples to choose from, including some in the private sector. After she was hired in 1972, a young chemical technician named Karen Silkwood began collecting evidence that her employer wasn't following federally mandated safety protocols as part of her position in her trade union's bargaining committee. She worked at a plutonium production plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. The plant was run by the company Kerr-McGee, a major player in nuclear power at the time. While Karen was polishing a plutonium pellet in a sealed box, the radiation detector indicated that she had become irradiated. Strangely, the seal on the box hadn't been broken. The radiation seemed to be coming from inside the gloves she was wearing. Further testing revealed that Karen's urine and feces were highly irradiated, indicating that she had somehow, mysteriously, ingested plutonium. Karen sent her complaints to the Atomic Energy Commission, testified against Kerr-McGee with other union members, and built up a collection of files to prove the plant's negligence in ensuring worker safety. On November 13, 1974, Karen was on her way to a meeting with a reporter from the New York Times and a representative from her workers' union carrying the files with her in the car. At some point on the road that night, Karen's car drove off the road and crashed into a concrete culvert. She was dead before medical help could arrive. An autopsy found that Karen had taken a large dose of quaaludes that night, which would have made her drowsy enough to doze off at the wheel. It was tempting to declare her death an accident. But there were suspicious dents on the rear of her car, and a second set of skid marks on the road where she drove off the edge. It seemed a second car had deliberately crashed into her bumper and pushed her to her death. To make matters worse, Karen's files were missing from the car. 
it seemed whoever killed her had intended to cover up her employer's sins. Karen's death was never officially solved, although if it was murder, the motive seems clear. She had blown the whistle on her negligent employers, and it had cost her her life. It's clear that whistleblowing is a conceivably fatal enterprise, but whether a whistleblower loses their life or not, the act is guaranteed to have repercussions. The whistleblower is thrown into a world of chaos as their actions are dissected and analyzed by the government, the press, the general public, and even their own friends and families. They're often forced to reconsider if they've made the right decision. Their loved ones have to grapple with the same questions as they struggle to navigate the morass of morality that whistleblowing represents. To blow the whistle is to believe the information you're revealing is more valuable than your own life. It is an act that requires an immense amount of courage and perhaps some degree of foolishness. Because once the whistle is blown, there's no going back. Few know this better than Edward Snowden, the man who risked everything to reveal the frightening and legally questionable surveillance activities of the NSA. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back next week with part five of our whistleblower special on Edward Snowden. You can find all of our ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week to continue our deep dive into the world of whistleblowing. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Espionage was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy.